is so important. Prepare our hearts to receive God's the word. As, as, as many of you know, we've been walking through Ezra and Nehemiah these last weeks. And Nehemiah, though, two books of the Bible are actually one work itself. So we're going to continue uh, right on into Nehemiah next week as we finish Ezra this morning. And as, as we uh, consider these chapters, Ezra 9 and 10 this morning, I, uh, I'm just always... Um, I confess, even as a minister, I'm, I'm regularly surprised by the relevance of God's Word. It just truly astonishes me how I, I, mean, I did pick Ezra and Nehemiah because I thought they were, uh, they're, they're, they really are books that focus on the nature of the relationship between God and His people, excuse me, the relationship between the church and the world, and they, they uh, really do speak uh, of various aspects that are of a political nature, and so I wanted to do that because of the of the, the season that we're in, the election year that we're in. But I, this, this, um, this, this morning's uh, topic, or this morning's text, is uh, perhaps those passages that, as a preacher, um, it's sort of the last text that you would want to preach on. Uh, it's one of the texts of the Bible that is most, um, makes, is in a sense, one of the problem passages, one, one that... Uh, Many will read and think, this is why I don't want to be a Christian. This is why I think religion is... So um, let me just jump in. I want to talk about just the, the, the nature of the relationship between religion and racism in America today. Uh, America's history reveals a complicated relationship between religion and, and race and racism. Um, specifically, a complicated relationship between Christianity and color. So on the, on, on the one hand... Uh, uh, we white Christians, and especially uh, we, or, or uh, we white ministers, let me say it that way, uh, we, we've often been sympathetic to, or at the very least silent about, the evils of both individual and institutional racism in America. Um, you, uh, David Chapel, who is, uh, I've mentioned him before, is a professor of history at the University of Oklahoma. His widely acclaimed books are called The Stone of Hope, Prophetic Religion and the Death of Jim Crow. And he devotes an entire chapter to, to, to discussing the failures, some of the gross failures of the church in the American South during uh, the, the Civil Rights Movement. And as a PCA pastor, I, I can tell you I've uh, done the research looking at uh, our, our own denomination, uh, the ministers within my own tradition. And of course, the PCA itself wasn't started until 1971. I should know that up, and I, I can't remember, 1971 or 73, I think. And, um, but obviously, even though the denomination began in the early 70s, the actual, the churches, many of the churches and the ministers were already there. They were, they were there's a history there. And uh, they, um, many of them, sadly, uh, again, were either uh, silent or actually quite sympathetic to the segregation of the, of the Jim Crow South. And it's really it's painful to read some of uh, some of their uh, writings when you uh, and some of the statements that they make. Um, it's just it's, it grieves you. So on the one hand, there's a there's a complicity, right? There is a there's a way, way in which religion, white religion, white Christianity in America was was complicit in racism, and uh, and so there's, there's there's absolutely a sense of compromise, of complicity, of cowardice. But on the other hand, Christianity in America, listen to this, this is important, Christianity was the very lifeblood of the civil rights movement. So there's this kind of this, 
you hold these two hand in hand. It's, it's interesting. Even as, so even as David Chapel, even as he chronicles the compromise of the white church in the South, he also, uh, in detail, depicts the, uh, the amazing ways in which Christianity stoked the fires of the black movement. In fact, his, uh, his argument is as follows. Let me, let me quote here. He says, quote, the black movement's nonviolent soldiers were driven not by modern liberal faith, and by liberal here, he doesn't mean like Democrat versus Republican liberal, but a classical liberalism of, of Western thought, by modern liberal faith in human reason. Let me say that again, it's so important. The black movement's nonviolent soldiers, people like Martin Luther King or Fannie Lou Hamer, were driven not by modern liberal faith in human reason, but by older, seemingly more durable prejudices and superstitions that were rooted in the Christian and, in Christian and Jewish myth. It's very important to hear his words. So he's writing as a non-Christian. And, but he's saying what, what, what drove these soldiers, these non-violent soldiers, was not a, a faith in human reason. It was not the sense that, oh, one day it's always sort of this inevitable progressivism that we're just going to, you know, we're just going to, uh, everything's going to get better. Now all we have to do is make the right decision. All we need is more education, et cetera, et cetera. No, what, what motivates them is what he calls the seemingly more durable prejudices and superstitions rooted in Christian and Jewish myth. And, of course, he's speaking of, of, of the Bible. And he says specifically, he continue, to, to uh, continue the quote, he says specifically, they drew from a prophetic tradition that runs from David and Isaiah, so David is in the Old Testament, King David, and Isaiah in the Old Testament, through Augustine, the 4th century, and Martin Luther, uh, the 16th century, to Reinhold Niebuhr in the 20th century. So he, here's, again, here's a scholar, I mean, and he's probably one of the most noted scholars of the civil rights era. Again, his name is, um, his name is David uh, Chapel, And he's basically saying that Christianity, and specifically the prophets of the Old Testament, if you read uh, Martin Luther King's work, it's amazing how much interaction he has with, with Jeremiah and the very Micah. Uh, and the reason for that is because the leaders of the civil rights movement saw themselves, they read the Old Testament prophets, and they identified with them. They said, you know, just like they were, we, in the name of truth, are committed to waging an unwinnable war against injustice. They saw themselves as speaking out against an injustice that was so deep-seated in the culture that nothing, no, there was going to be no change. They weren't going to win, but they were just going to do the right thing. They were going to, they were going to go down um, speaking truth to power. And, they saw, and that's exactly what the prophets did. If you know the stories of the Old Testament prophets, very few of them had any success whatsoever. They spoke, uh, to, they spoke of the injustice of God's people, and most of the time they got killed for it. So, Chapel goes so far to argue that before the civil rights movement, listen to this, before the civil rights movement was even a social and political phenomenon, it was first and foremost a religious revival among the black church in the South. It was, if you will, a great awakening. So he documents the fact that while, so again, this is important, he documents the fact that while, yes, many white Christians and Christian ministers were part of the problem, absolutely, tragically, there were also some white uh, Christians and Christian ministers who were absolutely fellow soldiers and co-laborers in the movement. And the point is this, gang, I want you to hear this, this is so important. The relationship 
between Christianity and color in America is complicated. It's complicated. There's, an, there's undeniably much that is fake and much that is phony. There's also very undeniably much that is for real, very real. And so the question to ask is what is what? Which is which? Which is the real Christianity? The Christianity of the white church in the South? Or the Christianity of the, of the black church from which the black movement emerged? And answering that question, listen to this, answering that question requires in-depth consideration of both the story of America, but also the stories and the statutes of the scriptures. That is to say, to understanding the relationship between religion and racism in America requires real research. It requires rigorous research. That's the, my, my point is this, you're not going to understand the relationship and the nature of racism, especially as it relates to religion in America, by reading CNN or Fox News or watching, or watching them. You're just not. If you really want to understand race relations in America today, if you really want to understand religion and the relationship to, to, uh, to uh, racism in America, you have got to actually sit down and listen, really listen, and ask good questions. A superficial surface level survey of the situation will almost certainly get things wrong. And it's, just, it's, in the, in the, and it's exactly the same case for our passage today. Today's passage, again, is one that a pastor is loath to preach on, and yet I think it speaks so powerfully. So in chapter 9 and 10, what we see here are, we're divided into four different sections, where we have an initial accusation or allegation of, 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 um, of one, what, I, what I'm going to call syncretism of God's people. So let me look at, look at verses 1 and 2. First we see the supposed guilt of God's people. I want to read this, and maybe as you're reading you might wince, think, what in the world is going on here? In chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, after these things had, had been done, the leaders came to me, that is to Ezra, and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. So, so Ezra has this, so this is the situation. God's people, including Ezra, led by Ezra, have come back from exile. They have been, God's people have been removed from the land because of their gross disobedience. And then uh, a number of years later have been brought back and here they are back in the land, and Ezra is giving, here given a report saying that God's people have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples. Okay, and then go to verse 2. It says, they have, they, that is the God's people, and including the, the, the religious leaders, they have taken some of their daughters, their daughters, that is the, the Canaanites' daughters, the, the peoples of the land, some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. So there's this allegation that comes to Ezra that says, look, God's people are mingling, they're intermarrying with the people around them. 
And from this, this is just again so important from a 21st century perspective. When we read this, a 21st century perspective is saying, wait a minute, is this is this saying that the, this allegation, the, the, the quote and guilt of God's people, is that there's that they're guilty of inter, of mixed marriages, of interracial or, or interethnic marriages? Is that, is that the problem? Again, you look at verse two, especially the way, the, the way the NIV translates it. It says, they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. Oh, you know, that, I wince at that translation uh, because it's, it speaks of this notion of a holy race. And of course, that is not, I mean, and we'll talk about this more, that is not what the, trans, the NIV translators were, inten- were intending by the word race. The word race can be used in different ways. It's not the greatest translation. So the question I want to ask is, 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 are, is are they guilty here is, is, the, is the allegation being made, is it, a, is it an accusation of guilt concerning racial superiority or religious syncretism? So we look out on the surface and may say, oh my goodness, what is going on here? Is it, there, this, whoever's coming to Ezra is saying, look, there's, 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 there's mixed marriages going on, there's interracial marriages, and that's, that's just wrong. And so again, you just you, you just want immediately. The first, you just you uh, you sort of teeth are set on edge, and you think, "Oh my, this is, this is exactly why I don't like. This is why I don't want anything to do with religion because of things like this." And we can an- we can only answer that question, figure out what's going on here by asking more questions. And that's, that's so much of all what I wanted to communicate this morning is just that idea. Far too often, discussions about race and religion in America, and just race in general. Have way too many statements and way too few questions. It is so important to listen, to ask more questions because it can be so complicated. And it's exactly the case here. What seems to be the case on the surface is in fact not true at all. So let me ask a few questions. First, what was the calling given to Israel? What was the calling given to Israel? Israel. Was a, was a people, beginning with Abraham, a people chosen by God. Listen to this, but not choice. They were chosen, but not choice. In fact, you look at the story of the people of God, and you realize that God chose the most unfitting, the most often failing and frail people that he possibly could. There was nothing commendable or special about God's people, about why he chose them. In fact, again, it almost seems that God chose the least fitting, the least obedient, the least, um, the least desirable, if you will, the least promising people. And he chose them and he made promises to them. So the calling of God's people, even though they were chosen, they were not choice. It's a big difference between those two. But they were chosen to do something special. They were chosen to be an instrument of blessing and life and mercy in the world. And in order to do that, they had to be different. Got that? They had to be different. If you're going to be part of the solution in a world of evil, you cannot yourself be evil. You have to be different. To make a difference around them, God's people had to have a difference within them. Does that make sense? From the very beginning, God had told Abraham, in you, in you, Abraham, and in your your offspring, all, all nations will be blessed. So from the very beginning, the whole point of being a member of God's people was for the sake of the nations, for the sake of other ethnicities. 
Abraham and God's people from the very start were to be pro-world. Again, verse 2 it speaks of a holy race. Here, the actual literal translation is a holy is holy seed or seed of holiness. Seed being a line marked not by ethnicity, but by what? Holiness. Holiness is a fancy word for simply being different. So again, what was the calling given to Israel? It was a calling to be different. Okay? So again, it's important to, to, to look across this word race in verse 2. And if you read that verse in light of all the modernness, all of our present public discourse, you can radically reread scripture. And I want to make a point of that because so often the language and discourse revolving around religion and race in America is horribly confused. There's no technical terminology and people use words differently. And it's so important when you're talking with someone, you're reading something online or whatever it may be that you stop and say, wait a minute, how, what did you mean by that, by that word? How are you using that word? And so the first question to ask them is, what was the calling given to Israel? I said, well, it's that they were chosen. And they were chosen to champion mercy. They were chosen to, to, to be different in order to make a difference in the, wor- the, in the world. Otherwise, the only other option is that God's people are chosen and then are different. And the result is, is simply hypocrisy. So the first question is, what was the calling given to Israel? The second question is, what were the commands given to Israel? Well, if you were to, I could, I could walk through the Old Testament, I could walk through Exodus, I could walk through Deuteronomy, and I could show you again and again and again that the commands given to Israel regarding foreigners is beautiful. In fact, it is unprecedented. Nowhere in the ancient Near East do you find such pro-foreigner uh, legislation. And it's rooted in Israel's own story. So, so again and again, you will see numerous times, you'll see in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, even Numbers, you'll find beautiful regulations that basically go like this. They say, love the foreigner among you. Because in Egypt, you were foreigners. Got that? He's saying, wait, wait, think about you as a people group. Where did you come from? You were once slaves. You were property. You were were nobodies. You were immigrants. You were strangers in a strange land. How could you possibly look down on and oppress or ignore the foreigner? The Old Testament law again and again and again reminds them, these are your origins. This is where you came from. And that, that should determine how you treat the foreigners. Again, what were the commands given to Israel? Love the foreigner because you, yourselves, were foreigners. And again, there's nothing we can, for even, even the example, you look at the, the, the statutes given by the Passover. The Passover meal was just celebrating the exodus of God's people out of Egypt. And you think, oh, what a, an amazing ethnic sort of, this is the birth of the ethnic people of Israel. This is, this is who they are ethnically. No, you look in the, in the statutes and it explicitly, explicitly makes provisions for foreigners. Because if you read the story of the Exodus, it actually wasn't just God's people, the Israelites who left at, uh, out, out, out from under the, the, the reign of Pharaoh. It was actually, there was actually a movement called a mixed multitude of different people groups that came up out of Egypt with Israel. In fact, if you look at the story of God's people, it's amazing to see how many faithful non-Israelites there are in the Old Testament. 
Um, and it's, I mean, just give you an example. Someone like Uriah the Hittite, the, the husband was whom David murdered. He was, he was a Hittite, Uriah the Hittite. Um, you have different people who are, I think of uh, David's father-in-law. I'm sorry, David. Moses' father-in-law. Uh, and the way that he uh, helped God's people. They're all throughout there. We see a pro-multi-ethnic pro, pro, uh, stance for God's people. But of course, the question still arises, isn't given, even though God's, Israel has a calling to bless the nations, to ch- they were chosen to champion mercy in the, in the nations, even though their commands were given to Israel to be pro-foreigner, to be before the nations, was Israel still capable of prejudice? And is that, is that happening here? Well, of course they're capable of prejudice. In fact, you can read various places in the Old Testament where you see uh, absolutely what we would today call racism. It's, it's, it's what we would more generally call in the ancient world is called prejudice. We see it in the life of Jonah. We see it in the people of, of, of Jesus' day, the Israel of Jesus' day. We see it when John the Baptist speaks to, to God, calls him to repent, and he says, do not say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, as if somehow having this proper lineage is going to make you um, superior, accepted by the Lord. We can see it in various places. But the question is, is it, is it found here? And the only way that we can answer that is by looking at Ezra's response. So let's, let's do that. Let's... Um, Let's look at the, the, the rest of chapter 9 here together. Look at verse 3. Uh, so when told, about, when told about this news that, God, that God's people have intermarried with the peoples around them, uh, this, is how, this is how Ezra responds. Verse 3, when I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down. And everyone who trembled to the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. And the rest of the chapter, what he does, he, we, 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 he, he, uh, he rises to the evening sacrifices and gives this beautiful prayer. A prayer of, of repentance, of acknowledging the ways that God's people again and again and again throughout their history have been unfaithful to God. And he calls out for, um, for God to have mercy upon them. And, and, you, you, and so to, to summarize this response, I would say that it's a response of grief. It's a response of grief. So from Ezra's perspective, the, the claim is, this is not about racial superiority. It's about a religious, listen to this, religious, religious syncretism. A, so it, it, this concern is that there's an intermingling going on that has, that has actually caused great uh, religious or spiritual um, uh, impurity. And so, again, it's, to, to, to grasp this, it's, so I just want you to see for a second how Ezra responds. His response here is not one of anger. It's not one of superiority. It's not one of me, us versus them. It's not, he, doesn't, he doesn't say, you guys have blown it. He says, we as a people have failed. We have a history of failure. He acknowledges all that has gone wrong, and he grieves. And I tell you, that's just so different. It's so different from what we see in public discourse today. I mean, when people start talking about race and racism, and they accuse people of racism, there's just nothing but anger and an ire and, and, and just a sense of, of superiority, a sense of how could you be like that? And Ezra is, in, is actually saying, you know what? 
there has been something terrible has happened here, and I'm, I grieve it. And in that grief, communicates why. What, what, how do God's people respond to him? They gather around him. Because when we grieve, when we're grieving something, we grieve only because we love it. I mean, I've shared this story before, but it's just uh, one of my pastor friends, in fact, he, he's preached here uh, before, was uh, a real, um, he was a, you know, was a real hoodlum in high school. And he was constantly doing all kinds of unwise things. And uh, one time, he, was, he and his friends were vandalizing. Uh, they broke into an elementary school and were vandalizing the property. And uh, it was late at night, and the alarm was tripped, and they didn't know it. And suddenly, the cops showed up. And of course, they all saw the cops. They all, they all ran, just ran away as fast as they could in different directions. And my friend was able to escape and get away. And he was able to actually sneak back into his house. And by that time, it was, it was late morning. It was early morning. And he snuck in bed and thought, okay, I'm scot-free. And then his parents awakened him at like 6 or 6.30 or something like that because one of his friends who had been caught ratted him out. And uh, he, he said, I'll never forget going into the living room. His dad, who was a, I remember, was a Baptist minister. And his, he said, yes, I'll never forget my dad sitting there at the dining room table and just bawling his eyes out. He wasn't angry. He didn't yell at me. He didn't, uh, you know, just start giving me all these penalties. He just cried. He said, in that moment, I knew that my dad loved me. And it was more piercing than anything else. And Ezra, he hears this news of compromise, of deep religious syncretism, of, of partnerships being created. As we'll talk about in a second, as partnerships are created, that are totally different life trajectories, totally different uh, world uh, worldviews, totally different systems of value uniting together in what is really an unwise thing to do, a, a, a true a true act of compromise. So again, the first thing we see is the guilt of God's people, a guilt that is not of racial superiority, as I want to suggest, but a guilt of religious syncretism. And in response to that guilt, Ezra grieves, he grieves, we see in the rest of the chapter. And then in chapter the in chapter 10, we see that there's, in response to that, there's a certain guidance that is given and taken. And that guidance is, it, it might just it might just really astonish you. Look at verse 10, chapter 10. Again, this is, this is a text that so many uh, are, are struggle with. So we see in chapter 10, in these verses, uh, says when, uh, verse 1, while Ezra was, was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to, to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children. What in the world? In accordance with the counsel of my Lord and those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the laws. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. So here's this man suggesting that the solution here is to actually dissolve, dissolve the marriage relationships and send the wives and children away. In verse 5, 
Uh, we see, so Ezra arose, rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under an oath, under oath to do what had been suggested. And they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from, from before the house of God and went to the, to the room of Jehonanan, son of Eliashib. While he, was, while he was there, he ate no food and, drink, and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. Now, uh, and he continues that the proclamation is made that God's people gather uh, from, from all of Israel to, to discuss this. And, and there's, there's agreement that this is to be, this is what is to be done. Verse 12, the whole assembly responded with a loud voice, you are right. We must do as you say. And then there's this discussion of how it's, 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 a really, it's a really intriguing discussion. But there are many people here, and it is the rainy season, so we cannot stand outside. And there's, if we're going to have our deliberate figure all this out, we can't be out in the rain. Obviously, there's nothing, there's, there are no buildings of any kind that would, be, would cover all this number of people. And so they, they basically propose, hey, we want to do this in the right way. Let's, make, let's, let's do this uh, methodically, let's do this carefully, let's do this in the right way. And they, they suggest, and they, they agree to that. Verse 16, so the exiles did as was proposed. Ezra the priest selected men who were family heads, one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to investigate the cases. And by the first day of the month, of the first month, they finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. So we see here, again, that there's guidance given and it's followed. And the question is, what are we to make of this suggestion of, of, of actually dissolving these marriages and sending in the, the language of sending the wives and children away? Well, again, I think it's so important that we ask questions and not rush to judgment, not to impose our 21st century American values and sensibilities on an ancient text. The first question that we need to ask is, what is the nature of marriage in the ancient Near Eastern world? It's far different. Marriage in the ancient world, in fact, marriage in the majority world even today, is very different than how we think about marriage. Marriage for us is about creating companionship. That's how we think of it. It's about, I like you and you like me, and we have warm feelings about each other, and so we decide to spend our lives together. That is not how marriage was conceived of in the majority of world history, and the majority, even the majority of the world today. In, in the ancient Near East, and in, in throughout the world, to many parts of the world today, marriage is not about creating a com companionship. It's about creating a coalition. It wasn't some private, sort of intimate affair Marriage was actually a very public thing. It was something that two tribes, two families would come together, and it would be, and isn't to say that there was no emotion or affection. It's to say there was a recognition that we are allies now. We are together. So when two different families or two different people groups, when there's intermarriage among them, it speaks to a shared values, a shared trajectory, a shared worldview. And it was, and whoever would enter into a relationship like that, that they knew that's what they were doing. And so the point here is that these Israelites, these Israelite men and their sons, willfully, willfully married and allied themselves with worldviews that were totally foreign to the people of God. In fact, if, we, we, if, you, if you look back in chapter nine, you see how there's a, there's a note made of of the, the description of, of the people in verse. In verse, uh, verse 1, it says, God's people have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices. And we've talked in the previous weeks, we've talked about the sort of things that they would do. They would do things like child sacrifice. Oh my goodness. 
Okay, need I say more? They would do all kinds of things about uh, of sexual morality that just, they're just you, can, you can read through Leviticus 18, things of horror, horrific abuse um, uh, among their own family. And so the idea is that we can't intermarry with these perverse peoples, not because of their ethnicity, but because of their ethics, because of the way they live their lives. So again, it's important to ask questions. What was the nature of marriage in the ancient Near East? It wasn't about companionship. It was about a coalition. And then you can ask the question, what, in the, what was the basic unit of society in the ancient Near East? Where are these women and children going? I mean, where are they sending them off to? Just see you and see you later. It's not the case at all. See, in the ancient world, the basic unit of society was not the individual. It was the family. It was the household. And not even the nuclear family. It was an extended family. Most homes or most residential areas were really more like a compound of three or four homes where you would have multiple generations and multiple relations living all together. And to, and to, to, to actually annul a marriage, to end that relationship, and to, um, to, to send the wife and children away, what you would be doing is you'd be taking them and you'd be, you'd be sending them back to their house or their household of origin. Again, not to say that it's not traumatic, not even to say that you have to agree with it, but it's not as though, what, what the text is not implying in the least is that somehow they just abandoned the wives and kids on the side of the street and left them. That's not what they did. In fact, if you, if you know the story of Ruth, you can remember how Naomi, uh, the, the mother-in-law of Ruth, how they, 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 they're, they're in the land of Moab on their way back from Moab. Um, you've got Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, and they both go back with Naomi because they don't have anything else really to, to, to go back to. And, uh, and Naomi says, hey, look, don't follow me. Don't go back with me. Why would you go back to Israel? You're just be foreigners. And they cling, or both, or both the daughters-in-law cling to Naomi and say, no, we want to stay with you. But eventually, Orpah goes back. Ruth's, uh, Ruth's sister-in-law goes back. And she wouldn't have gone back to nothing. She would have gone back to her family of origin. She would have gone back to the house, what was called in, in the Hebrew, the Beit Av, the house of the father. And so again, this is not, this is, these, these are, these are, these are the, the decision, the guidance here is guidance that we're going to methodically, slowly sit down, think this through, and return wives and children to their families of origin. And again, we may, we may, we may disagree with that guidance, but again, it's not as though it's how reckless, as though it's thoughtless. It's, it, is, it is incredibly difficult. So that, that's the first question is, what was the nature of marriage in the ancient Near East? What was the basic unit of society in the ancient Near East? Another question is, what was Israel's own story? Well, Abraham himself was a foreigner. Moses' wife was a foreigner. In fact, the two men who entered into the two, the two of the twelve spies who entered into the, into the promised land, Joshua and Caleb, it's quite plausible that Caleb himself was a foreigner. And there were foreigners all throughout, and there were there are mixed marriages. Boaz ends up marrying Ruth. The problem here is not marriage per se; it's marriage to a to, to to persons, to people groups that embrace values that are so hostile to the values of the people of God. See, here's the thing, gang. If I were to ask me, Bruce, in your ministry, who who have you seen fall away? From the Lord, who are the people who at one time profess faith and no longer do? And I say, you know what? There are, there are actually three, at least three ways that people often stray from the faith. The first is money. 
when people start to pursue money and they go they're highly successful in their career, and, and often money is this thing that slowly, just over time, uh, just people wander from the faith. And that's why the, 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 imper- the, the commandments concerning money in, in, in the Bible are so strong. The second one is work. The people often find so much identity and investment in who, what they do, and they, they, they just get lost in it, and they're working more and more, and, they, and, 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 and Christianity and religious spiritual things just simply fade away. And you know what the third one is? Can you guess it from the text? It's relationships. More often than not, when a person, a Christian, marries a non-Christian, or when, when they hang around with non-Christians, over time, those relationships end up so compromising that person. And so here you have, that's why the, the Old Testament text, again and again, is adamant about God's people um, not making alliances, not having, you know, intermarrying with, with, with other communities that have very, very different worldviews. And so I, so again, so you have this, there's basically the outline of the chapter, as I close here, the outline of the chapter is that there's this, this guilt of God's people, there's the grieving that Ezra does in response there's the guidance taken, again, that we can take issue with. But, I mean, we need to understand the ancient Near Eastern context and not judge insensibly. We have to ask questions. And then finally, the last part of the chapter is you actually have the guilty listed. You have God's people saying, we blew it. We, we are at fault. We have compromised. And then this is amazing how Ezra ends. The entire book of Ezra ends with a list of those who were guilty saying, yeah, I blew it. Imagine that for all time. Your name is in the Bible because of serious compromise in your life. And you're like, yeah, that's right. I want it known. I want everyone to know that I blew it. Priests, leaders, Levites, whatever it might be, we all did this together. It was wrong. It's an amazing thing. So let me conclude with that. The church, as I said before, I say again, the church is to have purity. It's to be pure with its worship. It's to be pure in saying, we will not compromise. We will worship the one true God. Because when, when we compromise on that, injustice happens. It does. But it is to be public with its weakness. Again, it is to be, it is to be pure with its worship, but public with its weaknesses. And that's what I love about how Ezra ends. It just lists all the people who, who, who failed. And like, yeah, put my name on it. Isn't that amazing? What a testimony. So again, I, I want you to let me close by just saying the first thing I want you to hear is that when it comes to matters of race and religion in America, we have to ask questions. A lot of questions. We've got to do research. We have to read. We have to listen. We have to understand. We have to clarify terminology. And the second thing I would say is that, man, boy, as a church, we are called to be different. We are chosen, but not choice. Chosen to be instruments of mercy in the world. Chosen to be a blessing to the nations without becoming like them. We can't bless them if we're like them. Not because we're better than them. Not because we look down on them. It's wicked when God's people are arrogant. It's wicked. There's nothing worse really than self-righteousness. And sort of a con- just condemning others, looking down. It's beautiful, though, when the church is public about its weaknesses, when it lists its names of how the ways that we've compromised, the ways that we failed. When we as Christians do that, when we confess our sins, when we own our sins in our classrooms, when we own our sins in our workplaces, 
people will sit up and take notice. And they'll say, wow, that's unbelievable. I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't know people did that. I didn't know people owned their sins. I didn't know people admitted their weaknesses. People find that so refreshing. They want to know more. They want to move toward us and not away from us. They want to move toward the fellowship of the people of God. Because that's what we want. We don't want to join them. We want them to join us. Right? Let's, let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how beautiful it is to know that you are a God who chooses the least likely candidates. Jesus, you are a friend of tax collectors and sinners, of prostitutes. You are one who loves the unlovely. You are the one who welcomes all the wrong people. Oh, Lord God, how beautiful that is. And I, Lord, how often your church has been complicit, Father, in prejudice and in racism. How often your church has been complicit in superiority and, and in, in self-promotion, Lord, and how, how, how wicked that is. Father, how guilty we are of that. But, Lord, I pray, too, that we would be a church that is so public about its weaknesses, that is so willing to admit its sin, Father, we would do that in the homes, in our marriages, as parents, as children. Father, that we would do it as our co-workers and classmates. Lord, I just really pray that you would humble us. Lord, I pray that you would give us a zeal for purity, for real purity, to do what is right, to live differently. That we might be a blessing to others, to live sacrificially, to live generously in our lives. Oh, Lord God, would you enable us to do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.